0: You're listening to the Chancellor Pink Podcast on Chancellor Pink Radio. I wanted to make a quick podcast about economics. Now, I uh, took a number of economics courses in college, and I wasn't superb at them. (laughs) There was a brilliant professor at Carnegie Mellon named Stephen Klepper, and he was a cutting-edge economist. And I took him for a couple courses, policy analysis one and two. And I got B's in his course, but it blew my mind how so many people, you know, I never had basic economics uh, prior to those classes. I never took a basic economics class, but he opened up the first course of policy analysis teaching a basic economics, you know, and the Convergent lines of supply and demand and so forth But it made no intuitive sense to me How when uh, supply was less I'm sorry, when demand was less Price would go up I didn't get that Uh, The idea was, and they showed the the graphs And I thought, yeah, okay, I see that that's where they uh, intersect The greater the demand, the more the price can come down but it seemed to me, common sense-wise, that if fewer people want your project a pro- product, you're going to have to lower your price to sell it. But instead, it was like, well, to make back your costs, you had to increase it because you're selling fewer and you need to cover the expenses, which, okay, it was complicated at the time, and but it made some sense, but... Then when it got more and more complicated, it even made less sense. And even that, like I said, still makes intuitively less sense because I would think you're going to lower your price and take a hit on costs and sell more of them because you lower your price and then you'll recoup your costs. See, to me, you outsmart the market, but they were teaching this basic principles of economics that was really cold-blooded. And I think policy analysis was supposed to be Stephen Klepper's more intellectual version of how to deal with uh, with economics. And in particular, one of the big topics I remember that he really hammered home, and I don't remember if this was in policy analysis one or two, but um, and believe me, my understanding of everything started to decline, although I got a B because I only got one C at Carnegie Mellon and that was in chemistry. And that was because I'd never had a chemistry course in high school. I didn't have to take it. I had gotten an A in physics in high school. I took a physics course in college, got an A in that. But I never had chemistry. I thought, well, I'll just take chemistry as a because I wanted to learn it. I I needed I needed some uh electives to fill out my uh, my degree of professional writing. And I chose scientific, computer related courses where others wouldn't. Because I wanted to learn. I was good in math uh, in, in high school and wanted to stay in that area. And so I took chemistry thinking, well, I didn't have an high school. I, I, wanna, I don't want to go through being educated and never have had a chemistry course. So I'll throw that in there. Oh, my God. Everybody knew it from high school. And the teacher never taught it. The professor, because he was so... It was a beginner's chemistry, and everybody in there took it to get an easy A. Because apparently, unbeknownst to me, when you take chemistry in high school, it's real easy. Physics is supposed to be the hard course, which, like I said, I got an A in. But chemistry to me, and I couldn't decide if it was because... I had never had it, and everyone else in the whole damn class, and I'm not kidding, had had it before, and they were all just laughing and answering and raising their hand and answering every question. He was like, of course, of course, PH two, three, salt times four. (laughs) And everybody knew it, and I was like, what the fuck? And I tried, and I was reading, and I really was trying, and at some point, I gave up. I got a C because I just, I had tremendous anxiety, and I stopped going. I was terrified of chemistry class because in all of my life, it's the only C I ever got, and that's the absolute truth. I never got a C in high school. In fact, I never got a B in high school except in calculus my senior year, um, I got Bs all all across the board, but I never went and I never did the homework and I hated the teacher, but I just had to take it because it's calculus and I was one of the top students. I graduated valedictorian, so I had to take it, but I never w- wanted it and uh, didn't. It was all yeah, yeah. I think I could figure this out, and occasionally I did figure it out and go up to the board and do like this equation that was blowing everyone's mind but for the most part I blew it off because I just hated the teacher and just decided I'm going to college for something else I'm not going to be an engineer you know so um, but I thought in in college when I went to Carnegie Mellon I'll I'll take chemistry because that was one of the courses one of the only one I had biology I had physics I had trigonometry and calculus. I had, you know, all the English courses and took a couple years of Spanish, blah, 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 whatever. And I thought, well, chemistry is one of the courses that are sort of base course that I just didn't. I took physics instead of it, I think. And um, but I took it in college and everyone knew it. And I was terrified. And it was the worst experience in my life. And like I said, the only C. I ever got in higher education or high school, and it was a terrible experience. And uh, I still dream about it because uh, the idea of being uh, sitting with a group of students who are clearly know what they're doing and you don't, when you're not used to that, especially when, when that's the antithesis of what you're used to, and when the professor is not helping you out, when you're sitting there going, whoa, 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 look, I'm, I'm actually trying to learn from you. I'm actually taking this course and trying to learn. Are you going to help me or not? And the professor's saying, oh, come on. No, I'm just pushing this through. We're all just loafing here because we all know this like the back of our hand. And you're saying, no, I, I don't, you know, and he's basically saying without saying it to me personally, he's basically saying, well, I'm not going to babysit you, pal. Everyone else in here seems to get it, so I'm just gonna fly fly ahead. Light years ahead, light years ahead. So it was terrifying, terrifying, nightmare inducing, and I ended up just so afraid that I I, I barely read the book, I barely studied, I, I just decided it was over my head. And somehow pulled out a C, but I literally still have nightmares about that fact. Nightmares about being in class, not knowing the curriculum, being in over my head, faking it anyway, trying to get by. Uh, well, the second course I would say in my whole life, in my entire life, in any education I've ever taken, would be economics and policy analysis. Now, I did get B's in there, but honestly, I think I remember Klepper saying he grades on a gigantic curve. I remember this, and to him, a C is like a fail. And I think he gives B's to everybody, and you have to just really be good to get an A. And basically, you'll fail with a C, because he doesn't fail, because he thinks it's challenging shit, and he thinks I'm an a he was very arrogant. He, if I recall, he was, uh, I don't remember anything about where he was educated, but he had a beard, and he talked real cocky, and he, was, he dressed in tight jeans, and he was he was married to a really hot black woman uh and he was young and i think he was recently tenured at at CMU but he was you know published uh, basically every professor at carnegie mellon has to, had to have published books or brought a robotics program or some sort of program to the university gotten tons of grants to the university for study and research and or published tons of books. You couldn't be a Carnegie Mellon professor unless you were nationally renowned in some way and or brought lots of uh, money to the university by your subject matter. Even, and I'm saying this because even my poetry professor, I took a course in poetry that was taught by a guy named Jim Daniels. I still remember his name. And I, I haven't looked him up in, what's that? That was like 86? No, that was 85. Um, so, uh, 15, 20, 20, 36 years ago, haven't looked the guy up for all I know. He committed suicide, but he, his poems were very simple and happy and upbeat. And to me, he was a terrible poet. I, I didn't yet. He was a published poet. He was a published poet. So CMU hired him. So, but he was a real young, cocky kind of guy. He didn't like my poems much. I had been used to being praised a lot for my poems in high school. I was uh, cocky in, in college. I'll just say it. I, I thought I was in a band. I was writing song lyrics. I, I felt like I was a very good lyricist, a very good poet. Uh, I had a good knack for wordplay and imagery, and I just figured I was good. Um, but I learned a lot about writing. Don't get me wrong. I learned a lot about writing. When I was in university for writing, but poetry, Jim Daniels, I didn't learn shit and he hated my shit. He gave me B's. I got a B in poetry and I I was really frustrated with the guy because I kept thinking, well, this one will knock his socks off. He didn't like it. And the reason was his poetry was real simple and all about metaphor and all about, you know, the way it made you feel. He was not into rhyme at all. He wrote short little poems with like three words, a line and then one word and then six words and then two words. There was no, you know, he didn't write in any limerick form or iambic pentameter or any of that bullshit. I mean, whatever you want to call it, he didn't write with structure. He was a free form poet. Uh, and it was all imagery and it was all metaphor and it was all feel. And, um, Although I love, I, I have loved, I've come to love several poets that write that way, modern poets. They're just sad, and he was happy. I like the sad poets that write that way. And this dude was just, I don't know. I don't know, man. This guy, to me, I'm I, I'm going to look him up as soon as I'm done with this podcast. Jim Daniels, that's all I know. Jim Daniels poet. I wonder if he ever published another book As I understand, he was not yet tenured. He was recently hired just because he was a published poet and he taught poetry. But I thought he sucked. He didn't like my shit. I kept working hard to get him to like my poetry, and he just never did. He liked one poem once or something, and I thought, this one's great. And he said, strong imagery. And I hated it. I didn't like that one. That's one like I fabricated but I also had a great uncle I love very much who did a lot of drugs in the 60s and ended up uh, killing himself and everything. He was a very deep guy, but also fun and kind of wacky. Um, but uh, he didn't like my poetry because it was too literal for him. He liked a lot of imagery, and I just wasn't big in imagery. I was into the more of the literal stuff that rhymed that also had feeling. And to me, you can have a simple line that um, doesn't really strike you as original or brilliant. But the way it fits in the context of a song and what you're saying or a poem, it can be very moving. And it just has to me, it just has to strike something that people can feel. But anyway, I digress tremendously because my whole point of this is just to say Uh, There were some courses. I got more than a few uh, Bs at at Carnegie Mellon. I only got the one C, though, in chemistry. But the Bs I got in policy analysis, economics, I got those because the guy didn't give Cs. Unless he was failing you. And apparently I understood it enough not to fail. But I didn't know what the F I was doing. And one of his big concepts, Stephen Klepper, was... Opportunity cost. And that one has stuck with me because it made sense. But he went on and on in policy analysis, too. It was all about opportunity cost. And what that concept basically says, if you're not familiar with it, um, is that beyond the actual cost to produce something in terms of a product, the expense that you put out that you need to recoup when you create a sales price, when you're trying to sell the product. There's also something called opportunity cost, which is to say, if you make that, you've given up a chance to make something else. And when you give your time to that, you've given up a chance to otherwise invest your time, intellect, efforts in something else. And that is an opportunity lost. The thing you didn't make or didn't work on is something you could have done and maybe should have done or would have done, but you do a trade-off. And so when he factored in economic rules, he factored in opportunity cost, which is to say you value A more than B if you're creating and selling and making A instead of B. If you're putting more of your time into A than B, that means you there is a cost of what you lost for not putting that time into B. And that cost needs to be made up. Now, this was all, I think, his theory. This is why he gave B's to everyone, because he had his own theories on economics that went above and beyond the basic economic principles. Well, Ray McLaughlin, this guy, didn't understand the basic economic principles because I had never had a basic economic course. Everyone in the course, and there were lots of people, lots of bright people in his policy analysis courses. They would raise their hands and understand it. He'd go, yes, of course. Yes, that's right. Very good. They were all so smart. And a couple times when I spoke up, had the balls to speak up. He never said, no, dummy, or you're wrong. But I never got that stamp of approval when I had the courage to say, I think I can impress Stephen Klepper here. Wait away. Wait away. Here's this. I never got the answer of like, great, you know. So I went through two semesters of policy analysis, one and two, and never felt like I had a fucking really idea what he was talking about and really never had a fucking clue about economics and now as someone who's trying to invest and make money for my retirement as an older male i still don't have a fucking clue but i watch cnbc and i listen and i try to understand economics and i try to understand investment but to me it's complicated because i think it's part real part math which i was very good in and part uh you know english part uh, uh, liberal arts, part uh, philosophy, and that's fine. That's cool. That's that's why Klepper gave bees. That's why he called his course policy analysis because he was an intellectual at his own theories. And what I absolutely grasp when I watch CNBC, this is a lot of people pontificating with their opinions, and it isn't a science. The stock market and economics, and even the Fed is run by people that have opinions about what to do with the interest rates and how that may or may not end up affecting inflation, etc. So, I mean, or or the bond yields, etc. All of these things are not a science. They are, to some degree, you can study them and study them and study them. And what science is, you know, once you've studied enough of it is learning the patterns of how things fall when you do a and b what happens c usually sometimes d sometimes e but mostly it's c so therefore we can say after a number of tests it's you know this is study and testing that's what science is about we can say c is generally the result of a and b because when you do a and b enough times generally it's c but When you do enough science, you realize it's not really C. It's C most of the time. It's C is not the answer. It's just generally the answer. So the more science you engage in, the more you realize even science isn't math. Math is figuring out how things work and getting it to a certainty. Math is certain. Math is equations. Math is things that are indisputable and work every time. Science is not that. Science is an explanation for how things happen. And as I like to say, or coined this, I don't know, maybe 12 years ago, science is a thimbleful in a bucket of knowledge. That's all it is. Science is already there. We discover it and explain it by science. In other words, call it religion, call it faith, call it miracle. It's there, whatever it is. It's there. We haven't found it yet. We haven't found it yet, and we label it miracle. We label it spirituality. We label it magic. But that's just because we haven't found it yet and equated, put it together with an equation that we can write out and say, generally, this is how it works. We'll call it science now. But what you have to realize, it's still not math, which is to say it isn't all the time. This is how it works. Clouds generally form a certain way, given certain. Look at the weatherman. All you got to do is watch how it changes, right? You get a forecast. And two days later, it's completely different or significantly different. That's because a little change here and a little change there. And their general forecast has been thrown out of whack. It wasn't an equation. It wasn't a formula. It was a best guess scenario based on prior events and that's all science is and i say it's a thimbleful in a bucket because the bucket is yet undiscovered it's a giant surface of undiscovered things that we that scientists would say don't exist because they haven't found them yet you know that that hardcore mathematicians and atheists would say is impossible but it's in that bucket and you just don't know it yet. When you find it, the thimble grows. The science thimble grows and it becomes a coffee mug and then it becomes a 12-ounce glass and then it becomes a two-liter bottle, but it's still smaller than the bucket. And so to me, science is an explanation that is a guesstimation that is a, most times Not every time we adopt principles as science about the same way the Catholic Church makes saints, which is to say, yeah, they meet this criteria, that one and that one. I guess that's good enough. I think we'll call them a saint. But it doesn't mean they necessarily were a saint. Maybe we're wrong on this guy or girl. And same thing with the scientific principle. It seems to be well proven but maybe not. And believe me, there are many a quote unquote brilliant scientists who had a lot of theories that have yet to be adopted and they died lauded as brilliant scientists, but half the shit they believed was not lauded and was not regarded as science and was laughed at even as they died. I'm talking to you, Stephen Hawking's. Yeah, these people, they make movies about them. And if you, if you remember that movie, what was it called with Redmayne, Eddie Redmayne, stole, stole the Oscar from Michael Keaton in Birdman. It ends with him babbling on in his soon to die mind about his principle, about, about uh, the creation of the universe and the vastness of it. And although he was an atheist when he died, his theory sounds kind of godlike. And nobody believes it still to this day. His uh, molecular, stri- I mean, just watch the movie again. I don't remember it well enough to, to, to pontificate it here. But bottom line is Stephen Hawking's, as as brilliantly regarded as he was, had a number of beliefs that the world of science to this day doesn't accept. So before you go thinking. Uh, Science means Trump religion, means erasing religion or faith, means proving there is no God. Stop, because you're wrong, plain and simple. You're wrong. Science is simply an explanation that might be hard to grasp for some. That, And frankly, what we've seen with the Trumpsters and the Trump years and the terror of Trump is people that have chosen faith because they feel it as real. They have no explanation. They can't put it together. But it, they've had experiences in their life that for them have confirmed faith as real and eternity and God as real. And they then shoot down all of the hard labor and, and excellent work done by scientists that have, that have been some of it all but proven. Um, and some of it not quite proven, but they shoot it all down and, and reject it um, because there are disputes uh, as to the 100 percent accuracy of it. The religious folks, some of them say that means it it can't be real. Well, look, uh, scientific proof through repeated testing of a likelihood of an event is still better than just your gut. Okay, and that's what we're talking about here. Scientists simply believe, look, at least here we have some formulas that we work through and some principles that we've seen and we've tested and retested and we get a general result of X. And and at this point, we think this is a valid theory or principle, even a a valid principle. We can't say it's one thousand percent true, but we think it's probably true. Well, religion is just, well, we heard it and it felt good. And we've passed it on, and it sounds about right. So I'm going to go with it. Um, I mean, so no matter how you slice it intellectually, religion loses to science every time. But my point isn't to say that. My point is to say don't think for a second that that means that science is correct and religion is wrong. Nobody can say that. Nobody is saying that. And what's more, even if you say every single scientific principle that is accepted by the scientific community is truth. Even if you say that, you're left with the reality that it's a thimble in a bucket. It's still just what we know right now, which is jack shit on the whole. You know, what did the scientific community know 300 years ago versus now? What will it know 300 years from now versus now. So instead of saying science is it, first of all, it's just the best theory. It's not 100% true, any of it really. Secondly, it's just a small portion of the reality of our existence, of our environment. So let's not hate on the faith people because they're coming from a perspective of art. Some of them, some of them are just dumb and they're listening to bullshit told to them and they don't use their brains at all. And those people, yes, they're, they're disgusting. They're, they're just very frustrating. But a lot of them, a lot of them challenge faith intellectually. They challenge it in the way they live their lives. They doubt, they question, they test it very much the way a scientist tests a formula. They just tested in their actual lives with their heart, with their soul, with their experiences, with their pain and joy, with their ups and downs, etc. And they come out of it and they say, this test is, this faith is tested. This faith is challenged and doggone it, it's real. God dang it. This faith has survived the test of time, the test of a life that was That has seen a lot of grief and challenges and doubt. And the faith is still there. This scientist, pointing inward, has tested his theories. And his faith theories work out nine times out of ten to be accurate. It's a science of the heart. And the science of the science is just a mathematical, conveyable, uh, objective way to say the same damn thing about physical elements. But they don't say anything about the realm of feeling. And no scientist can say goddamn thing about psychology. That's why we have psychologists. So think about it. We're trying to create... A science of the mind, a science about emotion, thought. That's what we've called psychiatry, psychology. Philosophy, though, is a similar, yet very different science of thought process, science of structuring the mind. So look at these things. These are very well-worn, well-tested studies that people still go to universities to learn about. Right up there with science, there's philosophy and psychology. And the point is, they're all considered valid. And there's no scientist alive who can truly mock and ridicule and downgrade philosophy or or psychology, nor should they do that for theology. Because all of these things are different human form of testing theories and principles to a point where they come up good more than not in their own framework to the person practicing it. All of them are, in their own way, thimbles in a bucket. And there's a lot left to be discovered. But at least, thank God, thank God, we have spirituality to fill that void left by science, the gigantic void that science leaves, that philosophy leaves, that that psychology leaves. It fills in the blanks. And it fills it in sometimes with bullshit, sometimes with untested, unproven crap that people want to believe. But more times than not, it fills it with things that a community of people agree to believe based on praying, based on meditation, based on reading the word that we call the Bible or the Koran or whatever book your faith is in. And a group of people have agreed that it works for them in that way. And what's the difference between that and the American Heart Association reading a bunch of science and deciding, here's what we are going to agree is best for the heart, but uh, lots of other uh, scientists and health uh, aficionados out there disagree with it. In fact, probably more people disagree with the current principles of the American Heart Association as to what causes heart disease than agree with it. Uh, It's just a question of they haven't changed their tone yet. You know, the the causes of heart disease are rapidly coming around and this the saturated fat theories being disproven as we speak more and more and more. Yet, if you look at the American Heart Institute's recommendations, they still include all that fat stuff. So my point is you have varying philosophies varying sciences, varying religions, varying whatever, principles, theories, they're all working day in and day out to figure out the answers and thank God for them all. And if you don't embrace them all, you're a fool. If you're a religious person who doesn't embrace science, you're a fool. But also if you're a scientific person who doesn't embrace the possibilities of these various religions, you're a fool. And in particular, if you don't embrace the, pos- the obvious factual reality of the existence of the stars and the sun and the beauties of biology within the earth, the gorgeousness and power of it all, the majesty of it all, if you truly believe it was all an accident based on some theorem or formula, well, then you're just not paying attention. Clearly, there is a purpose To everything, turn, turn, turn. There is a reason, turn, turn, turn. And a time to every purpose under heaven. That's from the Bible, but it's also from a really good song. (laughs) And music itself is an expression of feelings in a a science. Music is a science of notes and how to play them on what instrument. It's very scientific, and to be really good at an instrument or even a voice, you have to work. It's a discipline. It takes effort and learning. It doesn't just come naturally. Some people are born very gifted, but that doesn't mean they still didn't work at it, just like athletes. You can be born with an athlete's body, have great genes, You know, Barry Bonds, born of Bobby Bonds. But at the end of the day, if you don't practice and practice and practice more, you won't be that great star. You'll just be that guy with talent who blew it because you never really worked at it. So we have in our culture, in our lives, and it's gone on throughout the world through eons, a growing, and evolution of our knowledge of the universe. We've called it science. We've called it faith. We've called it math and philosophy. And we've called it psychology. But it's all different variations of the same thing, which is various thimbles in the bucket to explain the bucket that is the universe, that is life, that is meaning. The bucket is everything. And there's a lot of room for learning still. So don't ever until the day you die think you've learned it and you know it and that's what it is. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I don't care if you're someone of faith or religion or science and math. I don't care if you're working with computers with if you're a veterinarian, if you're a doctor working with biology. I don't care if you're a garbage man or a milk truck driver which do they even have those anymore? Whatever field you're expressing as your vocation, understand that we are, all of us, in every field, learning. We don't know how to build the perfect building. Look at what happened in Florida with the collapse of that condo, right? They didn't understand their science of concrete and metal up against that ocean and their checks on it, which we thought should keep it safe failed most of these work out i have a deck i'm up high i worry they've never been up here they've never checked my deck they never look into it how do they know this is going to last why aren't they going around doing inspe- inspections my building is now 20 years old is my deck still sound i think so i'm on it i walk on it but i'd like a scientist up here looking at it i'd like them to look at the structure of this building You know, after the collapse of that condo, right? And wouldn't we all? And the point is, it isn't just people fucking up. It isn't just people missing things in inspections. It's also learning. They didn't know the science of the, the construction elements versus that environment. And we had that happen here in my building. The back end of my building faces the woods. It was all opened up. But given the fact that I'm in Pittsburgh, it's cold and icy in the winter. And they have to lay salt down for the stairs and the cement. And that whole back end, it gets tremendous wind back here. The best breeze comes on my the back end of this building. Over the years, and only we're only talking about five or six or seven. It was literally like a few years into this building. They realized, oh my God, the concrete stairs... And platforms at the back end of this building can't hold up to the elements of Pittsburgh given this background, given the woods here, and given the way the building is situated and the elements are hitting it. The wind, the wind and the rain, it hits this. It comes in. It comes in and hits the stairs. Some other placement of this building, it could be isolated because of the way it's situated, right? So no wind comes in. No rain comes in. So that concrete holds up great this building it was all hit with concrete and snow and they salted it and it all was decaying and it was going to cost them a fortune and there was going to be collapsing stairs right left and sideways so what did they do after only about seven or eight years of this building and it was wonderful open oh my god all these trees get so beautiful in the fall it was gorgeous And the breeze would come through the breezeway. It's open in the front. And the back end open. It was all open. It was so wonderful. It felt like a beach home. Coming into your your apartment here, up all the stairs that I come up, all open on both ends. Breeze blowing through trees out back. You see them through the stairwell. It was so gorgeous. It was wonderful. And it was just, it filled your soul with joy. Well, because of the elements and the concrete decay they closed it all in and oh my god was that noisy bang 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 it took months it took them like three months and i couldn't sleep my bedroom was right by the open the door you know the wall was right there where they're working for months it was a nightmare and every morning 8 a.m bang 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 you could never sleep past eight thank god they took weekends off anyway Oh, it was horrible. And now it's dark. It's dark. It's all covered up. They put windows in. They left them open. But it's dark. It's encased. Sure, the concrete's fine. The stairs are fine. It's ugly. It's dark. The whole area is ruined. It ruined everything. But it saved the building. My point is, these guys built a good building. But they, pl- they built it in the wrong location. They didn't understand the elements. They didn't bother to question and test the wind and the rain and realize they're building in Pittsburgh and not somewhere in Florida where it's warm, and the elements were going to come in and chew away and erode the insides of the building, and so they had to close it up. So science doesn't think itself through all the time, and building constructors don't think it through all the time. It doesn't necessarily mean mistakes are being made. It means every time you do something big, there's like three and four five factors, three, four, and five sciences, all column sciences. It could be a religion. It could be a philosophy, all at work at the same time. And unless you're smart enough and aware enough to consider each and every one of those elements before you do a task, you're probably going to fuck something up and lives may be lost. So my, my plea to all of you is to consider the economics of a situation, the philosophy of a situation, the mathematics of a situation, you know, the, the chemistry of a situation, the religion of a situation. As much as you can, every time you can. Because they're all just thimbles in the same fucking bucket. And no matter how much you learn and how much you think you know, please, dear God, recognize that at all times, you're working in a bucket with thimbles, okay? Understand that you are just putting together as much as you can to build a coffee cup instead of a thimble. That's really what you're doing. But you're still in the middle of a bucket. And that's the way we're going to be until the end of time. We're never gonna understand all the mysteries. No human being ever, a thousand years from now, will be living, understanding all the mysteries of the universe at once as we live. There's no human being, there's no amount of science, there's no amount of study or math or anything, no amount of praying that any of us can do to ever be human beings alive on this planet and as we exist know everything there is to know about how it all works all at the same time. It's just not reality. That's never gonna happen. So why do we go on insisting that that's the truth? Why do we go on pretending that I know reality and it's my Catholic faith and that's it? Or I know reality and it's my atheism and that's it? You know, why do we have these answers? When, if we know anything, we know that we don't have all the answers. And we also know more importantly, To do the best we can do, we should try to understand all of the questions and give our best shot at answering all of them, all of them, in everything we do. Open-mindedness, okay, call it what you will. I call it just trying to do your best. We can't expect our results to be top quality if we're not actually trying to understand all perspectives that might affect whatever we're doing. And when we close our minds, either to science or religion, we're not doing our best. And if you're doing that, you're failing, you're failing. And I was reminded of my class and opportunity cost. And I was thinking to myself, what are we giving up when we choose to believe one thing? What is the opportunity cost. We choose A, but we are choosing not to believe B. That's an opportunity cost lost. We are losing an opportunity to actually believe both A and B as we go forward. Why are we doing that? And How is it costing us? And we should think more about that. And we should worry more about that. And we should try harder to get an A in Stephen Klepper's policy analysis class. (laughs) I love you. Yabba da boop